Well, good morning, Crossroads Bible Church family. Just to point out to the sign that was just up there, I forgot in, this, in the first service, I'll say it this one, fourth and fifth graders, I just invite you to go ahead and uh, step into your classroom in the cave. Uh, but uh, just by way of introduction, if you don't know who I am, my name is Dave Giroux, and I have the joy of serving on staff as one of the pastors here. Specifically, I get to serve as resident pastor. I'm one of two of them. Uh, you probably know my man, Trig, who has preached here a few times already, and uh, I'm just so pleased that I get to be here with you all this morning. Um, we are going to be stepping into a text this morning that in many ways, to me, feels like radioactive material. And if you're in the medical field, you know that radioactive material has the power to contribute to healing, but you also know it can contribute to devastation. And I believe that this text is just that this morning. It could be devastating, it could be healing, depending on our response and how we hear this message this morning. But before we get to that, I just wanna open up with this question. When you think of famous sibling pairs in the world who've impacted the world, I just wonder who you would say comes to mind. And for all the Swifties in the house, you're probably thinking of these dudes right here. If you don't know who they are, don't worry, you don't need to know. I don't think there's any other pair of siblings right now who are blowing up my social media feed more than these dudes. Uh, maybe others of you, though, you're thinking of these guys right here, the Wright brothers, Orville, Wilbur. And if any of you are pregnant with a son, please, one of you name your son either one of those names. <laughs> Bring those names back. Come on. But on uh, December 3rd, uh, no, December 17th, 1903, these guys were the first people to take flight with the airplane and change the world of transportation as we know it today. I was talking to one guy who's actually a pilot about the airplane and its invention, and he said that whatever air scholars there are out there, airplane scholars, he said they estimate that the invention of the airplane made our world 25 to 30% smaller in terms of travel time. Mind-blowing impact on the world these two brothers had. Others of you, you're not thinking of brothers, you're thinking of sisters. Maybe these two right here, Venus and Serena Williams, talk about a pair of siblings who've impacted a game like tennis, not as just the only you could say they're arguably not just the most impactful black female tennis players in the game. You might make the argument they've had as much impact on the game of tennis as Michael Jordan on basketball or Wayne Gretzky in hockey. You could literally say they've changed the game. But then others of you, you're not thinking about people, siblings. You're thinking about these siblings right here. I know enough of you to know you're thinking about Michigan or state and for the sake of church unity and our Christ-like love for one another. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but this conversation on siblings, for me, it just hits close to home because I'm a sibling. You can laugh. God bless my mother. Her face says it all. I gave the meds to the wrong kid. <laughs> That's me, by the way, making that lovely face. <laughs> but as we open the scriptures, family, and we turn to Genesis chapter 4, we encounter another pair of siblings. You could say the original pair of siblings to impact the world. But as we're going to see in just a moment, these brothers, Cain, Abel, impact the world in such a way that it's like they pour salt on an open wound. We know from just already in our Genesis story, in our Genesis series, that that open wound I'm talking about 
is what scholars and theologians refer to as the fall. That is humanity's rebellion against God in the garden where Adam and Eve do not what is right in God's own eyes, but they take and eat fruit. God forbidden them to eat. They do what is right in their own eyes. And as a result, they're driven out of the garden open wound now exists in both their harmony with God, one another, and even, dare I say, all creation. Everything is no longer the way it was supposed to be. But, but then, God, in his wild generosity, He begins to address this mess they've made and he speaks these words to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in the first place with what theologians throughout the centuries have called the first good news, the first gospel, or if you really want to get nerdy with it, the proto-evangelium. I won't ever say that word again, so just know that. But you can check out that word there Here on the screen, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, talking to the serpent, God delivers this good news. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, note that, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And these words right here, Crossroads family, set in motion for us a pattern that will play out throughout the entire biblical story. A tale of two offspring. The offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman Eve. And the overarching question we ask in this story is this, who will crush the serpent's skull? Who will make all things new? And as we turn the page and meet Cain and Abel, you can't help but if you're reading this for the first time, wonder, is it Cain? Is it Abel? But by the time we get to the end of this text in just a minute, their moment of fame in the biblical story shows that our hopes are not just tragically deferred, I would even say they're devastated. Now, before we get into the rest of this story, I'd love for us all just to take a moment and read this out loud together. Um, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. If you're able, I I just invite you to go ahead and stand with me as I read God's word. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version, but if you are following along with one of our blue NIV Bibles, you can find the text on page 3. With that said, this is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, which read like this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten, note that, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh, that is the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. That's the good stuff. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother, spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And Yahweh said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to Yahweh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then Yahweh said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And then listen to this haunting statement here. Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh. Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod. That's literally translated the land of wandering east of Eden. This is God's word. You may take a seat. I don't know what stood out to you as we just read this text together, but I imagine that maybe some of you are starting to see just how much Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is already setting the stage for what we see play out here in Genesis chapter 4. I mean, clearly, this is, this is not just a text that is a tale of two brothers. We're talking a tale of two offsprings, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman Eve. Now, as we keep that in our minds we might be tempted to think the question we need to be asking then is this, which offspring is Cain? Which offspring is Abel? And that's not the question for us to be asking this morning. The better question for us to ask of this text is which offspring are we? Just as you know a tree by its fruit, you and I, the reality is we're going to know which offspring we are by the choices of our life. The choices that will either align with the way of the serpent or the choices we will be making that align with the way of the one who crushes the serpent, Jesus. If we are offspring of the serpent will cause other people to forfeit their lives. But if we are offspring of the one who crushes the serpent, man, we get to be agents of flourishing for others because we forfeit our lives on their behalf, just like Jesus did for us. Offspring of the serpent says, your life for my life offspring of the one who crushes the serpent says my life for your life which offspring are we today crossroads which offspring have we been this past week which offspring are we not just here in the 10 but out there in the 90 on our street corners which offspring are we So for the next few minutes, I just want us to walk through this text with that driving question, not just in our hearts, but also in our minds. And we're going to first start by just exploring life after the fall. Second, we'll consider the relationship between our choices and our consequences. And then third, we'll land the plane by just celebrating and taking in what we see in this text as the mark of God's mercy where this whole thing is going. And I just believe that by the time we get to the end of this text, we'll not only know which offspring, which offspring we are, I believe we will know how we can let Jesus transform us into being the offspring we were made to be. I want that for my life. 
I pray you want that too. So let's get after this thing. Check this out. The life after the fall, Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And there, as we step into Genesis 4, we see that, I mean, life after the fall isn't all that bad. Starts off on what seems to be a fairly positive note. Eve gives birth to a son, Cain. But then notice something with me. Notice the way she talks about that son. I mean, in verse 1, it's like we are reading the world's first ever humble brag. In verse 1, Eve says, I have gotten a man. But then it's just like she remembers, it's almost like this afterthought of a tip she tosses into God's jar with the help of Yahweh. Right, with the help of Yahweh. And there's just something going on here when we consider verse one within the context of the Genesis story that doesn't pass the vibe test. I mean, already, Eve, she's not off to that great of a start, is she? She's the first to be deceived, the first to take the fruit. And then in this remarkable generosity, shares it with her also not-so-sharp husband, Adam, just sitting back, letting everything play out, crushing no serpents. What I want us to see here is that it's this moment of goodness from God where Eve could have led with what God did, and God did all the way through. Just an interesting thing to note. Later on in the week, if you're thinking about something you need to meditate on in Scripture, do a comparison of verse 1 and verse 25. Compare how Eve talks about the birth of Cain, And then later on in the chapter, in verse 25, how she talks about the birth of Seth. Fascinating. But let's just talk about Cain for a minute. Abe, Abel, their names and just what they mean. You see, the name Cain literally means gotten or acquired. And you just can't help but get the sense that Eve is naming her son as if he's this property to possess. It'd be like me naming my son Luke. Bargain, thrifty, good deal. (laughs) If I was maybe a little more Dutch, I might think about it. But (laughs) you see, in the ancient Near East, sorry to all my Dutch people, I apologize. But in the ancient Near East, something maybe you know, maybe you're not so familiar with is this, that a name is so much more than just something you're called by. It's an identity you live into. It becomes your destiny. And I just can't help but think that in the eyes of Eve, as Cain is born, she just sees him as her latest merger and acquisition right in line with the fruit she took back in the garden. And I believe that this shapes Cain's identity for the rest of his life. And we see it in the man he becomes later on in the story. One who acquires, one who's getting, one who's taking. But then there's Abel. His name literally means vapor or mist. It's the Hebrew word hevel, and we see this word hevel show up all over the book of Ecclesiastes, if you know anything about that. Vanity of vanities. Life is vain. Life is a mist. Life is a vapor is the theme of Ecclesiastes. Life is here today, gone tomorrow. In the same way, Just note the disproportionate details given to the birth story of Cain and the birth story of Hevel. Cain gets this little narrative. Hevel, Abel, gets this mist, this vapor of a birth story. And it's here that we see the birth stories of these two men the names given to them, 
set a trajectory for their lives that we see in both birth story and life story. Cain and Abel. Birth stories. My wife's a doula, so she works a lot with moms. And I hear without details that compromise, you know, HIPAA laws. I hear birth stories often. I have two kids whose birth stories reflect so much of their very own story playing out to this day. Some of it's great. Some of it is a pain in the neck. (laughs) But birth stories, names, have a significant way of defining us, don't they? They tell us who we are, where we came from. And I just imagine that if we were to go on the porch, have a cup of coffee, sit down and get to know one another. I just wonder how you might answer these two simple questions. Who are you? Where'd you come from? And there's a couple ways we could answer those kind of questions, right? Uh, My name's Dave from Metro Detroit. Moved over here in high school. Been here in West Michigan ever since. Cool, great. On one level, it's good to know the names by which we're called, the places in which we were born. But on a completely deeper level, do you know who you are? Where you came from? What's your name? What's your story? Better yet, who gave you that name? Who gave you that story? Was it a parent? Was it a stranger? Was it something someone said to you? Something someone did to you? Or was it something someone didn't say or didn't do to you? So often I find that we let our lives be defined by the very things that have been done to us all the while we forget and ignore what should be the ultimate defining act, what's been done for us in Christ. Who are you? Where have you come from? What defines you? What's been done to you or what's been done for you? And the very fact that Cain and Abel even have breath in their lungs and that creation has not been totally wiped out says God has already done something for them even as early as this moment in the biblical story. And when we pick up the story here, When we get to verses three to five, you just start to wonder, maybe Cain and Abel see it too, that their lives are defined by what God has done for them. In verses three to five, we see them in this moment of worship. But then you notice something. (laughs) One's worship looks very different than the other. You just can't help but notice Cain's offering. It's described as just this average run-of-the-mill produce from the ground he's been working. It's like he's, he's offering the Lord this worship as an afterthought, as a half-hearted tip into God's jar. But then there's Abel. Notice how much detail is given to it. First of his flock he's keeping, the fat portions. It's like he's all in. He brings to Yahweh the best of the best for the king of kings. And I'm just so curious to explore and think about for a minute, what is it about these two that causes them to have such a different approach to the Lord in the worship they're bringing him? What is it about you and me that causes us to have such differing experiences in the worship we bring to the Lord? 
Is it who they are and where they came from? Is it their name? Is it their birth story? Maybe. But I honestly believe that for Cain and Abel and for you and me, it's how we view God's pursuit of us. It's how we view God's pursuit of us. For Cain, his view of God's pursuit of him is one of scarcity and stinginess. But Abel, his view of God's pursuit of him is one of abundance and generosity. Our pursuit of God will always reflect his pursuit of us first if we view God's pursuit of us as scarce and stingy, our worship will be scarce and stingy. But if we see that his pursuit of us is wildly generous and infinitely abundant, that's going to have an impact on the offering of worship we bring, not just here, but out there in our workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, on the road. <laughs> show me your view of God's pursuit of you and I'll show you your pursuit of him. I loved what Jamie said earlier of just how God enters into our hard stories. He enters into our stories so that we can enter into his with worship. Worship is always our response to God, but that's not all. What we see happen next is that it's in our worship that God so often responds to us. Verse 4, we read, Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And there's something in that text I want you to notice. It's with that word regard and how we interpret it. I'm not talking at a scholarly level, getting into the Hebrew, but at a deeply personal level. There have just been times in my life where I have often seen how God has had regard for someone else and interpreted it as his rejection of me. Notice that the text doesn't say his regard for Abel was his rejection of Cain. Comparison crossroads. We play the comparison game. It's a losing game and everyone loses, not just you. Everyone loses. It does not lead to your flourishing. It does not lead to you cultivating flourishing. It leads to your life being forfeited and you forfeiting the lives of others. And it's in the midst of this feeling rejected, this sense of comparison that we just need God to encounter us and come down like a father and talk with us for a minute. And that's what the Lord does in verse 6. Look at this with me. Verse 6. Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? I love these words because it tells me that there's no reason for Cain to be angry, no reason for him to be depressed. There's no reason for us to be angry, no reason for us to be depressed because God's regard withheld is not his rejection given out. And as the Lord advises him then in verse 7, Cain just needs to do the next right thing. And as he does the next right thing, will it not go well for him too? Does it not go well for us if we just keep our eyes focused on doing the next right thing? And then there's this line here. In this moment of fatherly counsel, the Lord gives Cain 
It's with that word sin in verse 7. Notice how God talks about sin here. We can talk about sin. It's crouching, it's desiring, but it's also needing to be ruled over. Listen, sin, moral failure, or as I love this, theologian Cornelius Plantinga calls sin, the vandalism of shalom. Sin is not something we must rule over the people out there in the world. Hear me, church. Sin is something we must rule over in the hearts and minds and lives of ourselves individually. If we only see sin as something we must rule over in those people out there voting that way, putting that yard sign out, waving that flag we can't stand, chances are it's too late. Chances are those specks we obsess over in the eyes of others are just our excuse for ignoring the two-by-four jutting out of our own eyes. Sin. Sin has got the culture already, church. I believe we need to be asking ourselves, does it got us? Are we ruling over sin or is sin ruling over us? And unfortunately, as we read on, we see Cain so bent on acting on what he feels and not on what God has just told him. And he becomes a God unto himself. And then in verse 8, that hope we experienced back in verse 1 at the birth of two baby boys, it's not just deferred but devastated in the murder of Abel, his brother. What we see here is that nothing is the way it's supposed to be. The serpent is crushing the woman. The offspring of the serpent crushing the offspring of the woman. Nothing is the way it's supposed to be. And it's just my uh, curiosity. What's God going to do about it? We've talked a lot about just life after the fall so, so far, and I'll just put it out there right now. We won't spend this much time in the next two sections of the message. Trust me, I got a Lions game to catch. Um, go Lions, baby. Um, but I want us to see how important it is that we have an understanding of sin and its disastrous nature in ourselves, in our relationships with others, and what we'll see eventually, the havoc it wreaks in creation. So let's just go there now into part two of our conversation, talking about the relationship between our choices and our consequences. I struggle with that word right now. And when we get to Genesis 4, I think we've already kind of established that we want to be reading Genesis 4 in light of Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3.15, that whole text there of that first good news. The two are kind of functioning together as like mirror texts. Genesis 3, highlighting the fall. Genesis 4, highlighting the fallout, the ripple effect of the fall. And when we see what happens next in verses 9 to 12, it's like we're back in the garden all over again. It's like we're entering back into a conversation we've already had. I mean, just look at the text here. You see, back in Genesis 3, Yahweh asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Here in Genesis 4, he asks Cain, where's your brother Abel? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve dodge responsibility, getting defensive, blaming one another, blaming the serpent. Here, Cain. Dodges responsibility, plays dumb, says his brother is none of his business. Specifically, he says in the text, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? It's an interesting word for him to use. 
because it brings us back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Check it out here on the screen. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Same Hebrew word for keep in Genesis 2, 15 is the same word Cain uses when he essentially says, I'm not my brother's keeper. Cain knows the creation story, but he uses it for his own selfish purposes. It's like he just can't see that his calling to keep and cultivate the garden entails keeping and cultivating the people around him. He's not just called to keep a garden. He's called to cultivate and keep people. This whole idea of keeping a garden and keeping people, being people who are cultivating flourishing in both creation and our gardens entrusted to us and the people in our lives, it's not optional. Both are essential to us being human being in the image of God. To be a keeper is to be a cultivator, both of gardens and of people. Does that describe us right now, church? Would people say they experience you as someone who is life-giving? Or do they feel like after every interaction they have for you, they're glad you're gone and they feel like they need a vacation? or a new job, or a new roommate. You see how that can go on. Are we people who are cultivating flourishing in life, or are we cultivating the forfeiting of life? Do we see God's purpose for our lives to be cultivators and keepers, not just of the areas and spheres of influence trusted to us, but also the relationships we're doing life with? And when I look around this community, Crossroads, I see a lot of people putting stakes in the ground and saying, I am my brother's keeper. Jamie, and everything she shared in her story. Joe, and the folks over at Life International, we hear in their stories. As I look around on Tuesday mornings from 10 to noon, more and more of you are showing up, not to be served, but to serve, and to imitate Christ in giving away your life as much as you can in that moment. Putting a stake in the ground saying, I will be our homeless neighbor's keeper. I see it in the 30 student ministry volunteers who, I don't know if you know this, but in order to be a student ministry leader here at Crossroads, you're committing six years of your life at least from sixth grade to graduation. And often what we find is because we've just instilled this culture of not being a youth group program, but a discipleship family People everywhere are coming to the student ministries, putting their stake in the ground, saying, I will be my student's keeper. I will walk with them past graduation and well into adulthood. I see it in the way, I mean, I'm here during the week. We have counselors who set up shop here using our space as offices. I see individuals, I see couples coming in knowing If they're going to keep and cultivate the world, if they're going to keep and cultivate their relationships, they also got to keep and cultivate themselves. Putting stakes in the ground to say, I am my brother's keeper. I am my spouse's keeper. It's going on everywhere in this community. And it's something to just absolutely praise God for because it says people are seeing that they are pursued by God to pursue him and one another and our neighbors. Bless God. Bless God. And so my question for you is this, who are you keeping? Who are you keeping? 
The good news is that if we see ourselves as our brother's keeper, there is a greater brother in Jesus who will keep us too. He will sustain us, rejuvenate us, and in some of the most surprising ways you can think of, give us what we need, forgive the cliche here, to keep on keeping But as we come back to the text, it just becomes so clear that Cain is all in it for himself. And in being all in it for himself, he misses something. I think we all need to internalize. We can choose our actions, but we can't choose our consequences. That's the relationship between the two here. You can choose your actions. You can't choose your consequences. That's God's business. And when you just think about the consequences God dishes out on Cain, you just can't help but feel again, we're back in Genesis 3 all over again. Both Cain and the ground are cursed. He's exiled away even further from Eden. He's sent out to live as a wanderer and a fugitive away from the presence of Yahweh. All of this, though, just seems too much for him. And now he gets really talking. And we see it here in verses 13 and 14. Notice how he responds to the consequences he didn't choose, but God chose for him. Verse 13, Cain said to Yahweh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from, and he just goes on and on here to state his fears. And what he just imagines now is going to happen as a result of what he's done. We can choose our actions, crossroads, but we can't choose our consequences. That's the relationship between the two. But what should surprise us here is what we find in the next final moment of this text. We can appeal to the Lord for mercy to endure our consequences. We can appeal to the Lord for mercy to endure those consequences. And that mercy is what we see next here in part three, the mark of God's mercy. Please look with me at verse 15. Notice Yahweh's response here. Then Yahweh said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, lest anyone who... Sorry, I got my spot lost there. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then there's this interesting line here. And Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. We could go down some pretty epic rabbit holes trying to figure out just what that mark was that the Lord put on Cain. I'm sure there's a YouTuber out there who, or two who think they've got that all figured out. Good for them. I don't think that's actually helpful. I think the better question to ask is not what was the mark, but what did it mean? Not what was the mark, but what did it mean? And when we see the meaning of this mark, we see the heart of God revealed in it. All throughout Genesis, this word that is used in Hebrew in which we translate Mark, shows up a couple times in some pretty significant moments. Um, the first is in just Genesis chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and it comes off the heels of the judgment narrative where things have finally dried out, a remnant of humanity and all creation is preserved, and then these are the words of mercy and promise the Lord delivers to Noah. I have set a bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign also could be translated mark, a sign or mark of the covenant between me and the earth, a sign that shows us God's promise and his mercy. But then, the second text to consider here, it's in Genesis chapter 17, verse 11, and here the Lord speaks to Abraham after what could be described as a false start on the offense. It's in this context, following Abraham's sexual foul play with his wife's servant, Hagar, 
that we also read these words of mercy and promise as the Lord speaks to Abraham. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I could speculate all day what this whole mark is that the Lord puts on Cain. But what I believe the text shows us in the biblical story is that this mark is a mark of mercy and promise. Mercy that offers forgiveness to Cain for his sins, but promise to the guy that his story's not over yet. His story's not over yet. He can get a fresh start and he can keep on living. You can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences. But the amazing thing we see here in this moment of the text is that we can appeal to the Lord for mercy to sustain us. And he's more than happy, more than willing to give us what we need to keep going. Have you made some choices? Have you experienced consequences you didn't choose? Have you appealed to the Lord for mercy to endure? If we would draw near to God, he will draw near to us. The rest of Cain's story is one we don't have time to get into. But in a nutshell, what we see is that moment after moment, he's encountered with God's generosity and abundance, and he continues to do what is right in his own eyes. He continues to take matters in his own hands, and rather than embracing God's sentence to wandering, he takes things and sets up shop and builds the first city. And that city becomes a city of chaos, death, and destruction. We'll see that next week. So what do we do then with this tale of two brothers, this tale of two offspring? Again, we might be tempted to want to think, which offspring is Cain, which offspring is Abel, but the question we've needed to be asking ourselves today is which offspring are we? And the reality here is this. We're all offspring of the serpent. We're all offspring of the serpent. Maybe we haven't murdered someone with our hands, but we know when we read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5... We know that murder is not just a matter of what we do with our hands, but what's going on in our hearts and coming out of our lips. We murder in the way that we get angry. We murder in the way we insult others. We murder in the way we chew people out. We murder in our road rage even. And when we're given an opportunity by the Lord to confess and address our sin, just like Cain, just like the serpent offspring, we dodge, we get defensive. Who hasn't found themselves playing that card? We're all offspring of the serpent, needing someone to come and crush the serpent's skull. We all need someone who can be the greater brother's keeper. We need a Jesus who can do that. And that is who we find as we get to where the biblical story goes. We see that offspring arrive and hopes not deferred. Hopes not devastated. Hope is fulfilled. And in Jesus we see just how infinitely abundant, infinitely generous God's pursuit of us is so that we can respond with an abundant, generous life of worship to him that cultivates the flourishing, not the forfeiting of the lives around us. We can be keepers who cultivate 
Not because we're so good, but because our God, our rescuer, he's so good. Have you embraced Jesus as the one who crushed the serpent's skull for you? Is Jesus your keeper? Would you even dare say, Jesus is my brother? Jesus, my brother, fully God, fully human, keeping me forever. As the band's about to come up here, this is a moment where we can respond in one of two ways. We can respond with our arms crossed. We can respond with our hands open. We can recognize our need to respond and just saying, God, my view of you, I need you to wash it. The way I've worshipped you, I need you to wash me. The way I've interacted, the way I've cultivated or not cultivated, flourishing or forfeiting, God, wash me. I invite you to come, participate, respond to God in mikvah. And as the band just comes up, I invite you to join me in this moment of prayer as we continue to worship the God who pursues us first. Father in heaven, we just begin where we left off. We give thanks to you because you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. We worship you not because we're good, but because you are. Meet us in this moment, Father. Pursue us that we might pursue you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. In Jesus' name we pray.